This episode is sponsored by a patron of the Met Orchestra Musicians. Since the shuttering of the Metropolitan Opera in New York for public health concerns, Met Orchestra Musicians has remained committed to connecting its global audience through music. They firmly believe that music and art offer solace, inspiration, and an affirmation of our humanity. Visit metorchestramusicians.org to offer support. On this episode, we have June Ambrose. June was born in Antigua and migrated to the U.S. as a child, growing up in New York City where she remains a resident. She has fond memories of the entrepreneurial spirit instilled in her by her mother, which, coupled with her innate passion for fashion, compelled June to explore roles as costume designer in theater, feature films, and commercials. She parlayed those experiences and fine-tuned her artistic vision to launch herself into a career as an international phenomenon and highly sought-after fashion consultant for leading musicians such as Jay-Z and Beyonce. She has worked on over 200 music videos and has toured the world with her clients. She co-hosts a show on Instagram with her daughter, dubbed The June and Summer Show. June, thank you so much for being on our show. Thank you for having me. I've been very fascinated about uh, all the amazing things you've done in your career. And of course, we've been connected through our mutual friend, Helena Choi. And um, I'm always asking about how things are going with you. And, and we did have the, I did have the privilege of meeting you in person uh, about a year or so ago on your birthday mm-hmm. celebration. So I, I remember. I remember. To be a part of that. Um, June, I'd love to start from the very beginning. I know you hail from the West Indies country of Antigua. Um, and is that where you were born? I was born, yeah. So I was born in Antigua in the West Indies. I left there when I was 10 months, moved to St. Croix. And then came to America when I was three years old. Okay. So I've been in New York my whole entire life. I'm 49 this year. Um, that's pretty much a lifetime. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I've been in this country for 47 years, 46 yeah. years. Uh, absolutely. 40, well, you look half years. as old as that. Uh, that figure. So uh, well done on that. Um, And uh, when you migrated, you went to the Bronx. Yes. So I grew up in the Bronx, actually. Okay. And I understand that um, uh, your mom was a single mom raising you. Um, Do you have siblings? I do. So I have an older sister um, that I was raised with. And then my father has a number of children um, (laughs) that I can't keep up with. Okay. But my, but I was raised with an older sister who's four years older than me. She uh, is a labor and delivery uh, nurse. She delivers babies. Um, so we're in two different spectrums of lifestyles. <laughs> she lives in Georgia, and I live in the big city of New York. Right, right. Well, fantastic. Um, I want to hear about how, as a girl, young girl, you would dress your Barbie dolls. Well, you know, when you are a latchkey kid, you know, it's interesting because I I tell my kids now I have a a 16-year-old and an 18-year-old. And I'm like, you know, when I was growing up, we had to use our imagination. We didn't have the internet. We didn't have, and we also didn't have the luxuries of being outside because my mom, you know, she worked. So once we came home from school, we didn't, it made her feel, it was comforting to her to know that we were safely behind locked doors. So we would go to school, come home, lock the door, and that's where we'd have to create every bit of after-school activity. After we do our homework, we'd have to. That was the village. That was that was the home base. Um, it was the sacred place. It was a safe space. And um, you know, I was always in a creative. I was always a creative young child. 
Um, if I wasn't, you know, with my entrepreneurial spirit, I would open up a general store in my home where I would sell my sister. Like I would take possession of everything that she would need lotion, every, you know, this is the biggest pain in the butt. And I would take possession of all the things, the essentials that she would need. And I would sell them back to her with paper money. So anything that she needed, she had to come to my general store and buy them from me. And I would make little crepe paper, you know, purses and sell them at school. And all of my dolls, I would, you know, we couldn't afford to buy them outfits. So I would, you know, uh, I would make them I would cut up a sheet that was on its way out or the curtains and get into trouble quite often for, you know, I would just cut the bottom to make like a little, you know, skirt or a little top. And, um, you know, and I would hand sew them until I got my first sewing machine. I still don't know how to sew, but at the time, you know, again, you know, you, 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 you used what you had um, and you made, and it, and I tell people to this day, we didn't have a lot, but I didn't feel, I didn't feel like I grew up poor. I grew up feeling like there wasn't anything that, you know, we didn't ask for, we got. We may have to have, we may have to wait for it. Because at that time, my mom would put everything on what they would call layaway. So, you know, we'd pick all the stuff and then you, she would pay down on it. So especially for back to school shopping, that was a thing. And, you know, Christmas, you know, being able to get us all the things that were on our list, she would put them on layaway. Wow. So there was nothing that we never, you know, that she she really had a hard time telling us no. I think she overcompensated wanting to keep us safe. My mother, when she got divorced from my dad when we was when I was very young, she never dated anyone else growing up. I never saw another wow. man, no other men came around. Okay. And that was because she didn't want she wanted to keep her girls safe. She didn't think another man would love us like a biological father, or she didn't want to even potentially put us in harm's way where this no. man could potentially look at her girls in a way that was inappropriate. Yeah. So she was selflessly, she waited until we were of age and we moved on and we, you know, we moved out just, you know, to have a companion. We actually found her a companion when, oh, I was, well when we were ready to leave her. It was just us growing up and yeah. the family Every time the family came, any family member came from the islands, my mother was the Statue of Liberty. She <laughs> was the place that everybody came. Everybody and in it. our one bedroom, one bedroom tenement apartment, we would take people wow. in, family members in. Wow. A little dining area became like another, another bed space. I mean, we were living, you know, sometimes four and five people in a one bedroom apartment. And, uh, you know, my mother would set up and get their papers together and look for their apartment, get a job. And I said to her, I said to her, give the Statue of Liberty, everyone who comes from, you know, immigrant that comes across <laughs> the water, you, you know, you take them in. Yeah. But that was just her nature. She was just very selfless. And she was the elder. She was the matriarch of the family. Okay. So, you know, we didn't complain. So we grew up and every family member ended in the same building that wow. we lived in. <laughs> so we all were kind of like on different floors. It was kind of very cool. Yeah. House parties and stuff like that. Right. Um, and, oh, you know, that. my aunts and whoever can, family members can look after us when we come home from school. They know they would check in on us and make sure if we needed anything. 
make us lunch or you know dinners and stuff like that yeah yeah oh, that's it, it took a village and, and yeah. family was very important yeah oh that's wonderful that you had that um your mom was in retail she owned uh, a store so when we were in when she was in the caribbean she had a general store um where she you know they made carnival queens outfits and then it was like kind of like the general store in in the neighborhood so she would sell everything from pastries to whatever essential food goods you would need in the neighborhood then when she came to america she got her first job was at a retail store a department store called wertheimer's okay and um and so, you know, so she, you know, when she was in the island, she used to go to Puerto Rico and shop for clothes. So she was right. in fashion, so to speak. In my adult life, she, my mom had went and got a nursing degree because she wanted to really kind of try to provide more for us. Wow. So she got a nursing degree and became a nurse's aide. And, you know, fashion was not something that she had pursued. It wasn't like she was like, I'm this fashion person. But yeah. the retail store loved her because she was great with people. She yeah. was great. She could identify clothes and style and help people, you know, when they came into shop, she was wonderful at that. So it was a great transition coming from the islands and having your own store to going into that space. But financially it wasn't enough. It didn't make ends meet. And she went and got it. And so she worked at a nursing home for 20 something years. Wow. Um, You know, growing up, I would watch her care and nurture the elderly and, the most just it was just beautiful to watch i would sometimes go after school and just sit with her and spend if the school was off for a week i'd go to work with her and help her with different patients and stuff like that so understanding how important it is to care for those towards the latter part of their life was i think a really life-changing experience people young people should experience that they should understand how important it is to care for our elders yeah. You know how important it is to, to care for those who care for us once in their lives because they regress back into an infancy state. And they, the same way our parents nurtured us from birth is how we end up in, in the life cycle having to care for them at the end, yeah. towards yeah. the end. Absolutely. No, that makes complete sense. So June, would you say that you inherited your sense of fashion from your mom? Um, but there's always this tension between art and maybe something more practical. And so she went for something more practical and becoming a nurse, but you've really flourished in this. Yeah. I, I think uh, my grandmother who we lived with initially when we first came from the islands, she was very glamorous. And Uh this was my mother's stepmother. This was my mother's stepmother who was the same age as my mother. Oh, So my mother's father, (laughs) So she was very, but we, I still called her granny. It was like, the, it was the ongoing joke. She was, right. I would call her granny. So it became like a thing. And to this day, I still call her granny. She's still alive. And um, she was very glamorous. My mother was a simple woman, very, you know, well-kept, but wasn't like a glamorous woman, very practical woman. My grandmother was with glasses, gowns, feathers. You know, she was like Zsa Zsa Gabor. She was like Diane Carroll, you know, hair coiffed, okay. you know. So I think that I, the idea of uh, being fabulous uh, definitely came from my grandmother. But the entrepreneurial and hard work came from my mother. The relentlessness, the never complaining, the the need to want to do to 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 do for yourself to win don't sit and wait for a handout you know came from my mother to 
had buried a child. My, I had an older sister. Oh. There's three of us. She okay. buried my older sister. And, um, and my sister was the middle child. My, old, my sister now, but I had the older sister I have now, okay. was the middle child. She got divorced, yeah. came to America, and started her life all over. And she just never looked back and she never complained. And she was not in a great place with my, my dad, but she never, ever, ever spoke an ill word of him, even though he had his indiscretions and he was not very kind. Um, she never, ever spoke those, never spoke ill of him. So it says a lot about her character. Yeah. And um, I think, you know, um, I, I admire that about her. Yeah. To this day, I still admire that she she did it the right way. And I think that's how it should be done. I completely agree. It really is admirable. June, how old were you when your eldest sister passed? Oh, I was, I was very young. I was I maybe about uh, two years old. So I didn't know her. Okay, My so sister really remembers her. Yeah. 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 She had what they called rheumatic fever. When they wow. described the symptoms, it sounded as if it was uh, like, it was, it's almost sound like sick cell or some kind of, yeah. you know, it, like a, that kind of uh, cancerous blood disease or something, sure. from what I can, the way they described how she suffered in the pain. Yeah, yeah. I think if she was in America, maybe they would have been able to save. Could have done something. But yeah. in a third world country, you know, yeah. That's so. hard. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, it's really amazing the strength that your mother showed uh, throughout uh, your growing up. Now, you started working in a bank uh, with you in your career. Is that the mom's influence there? Uh, well, it made her very happy because I, well, I went to school for the performing arts. Okay. And so when I took this job at this investment banking firm in the research department, she felt that it was a safe place for me. She felt happy for me because she, it was consistent. You know, when I was pursuing my acting career, it was so like, you know, whitey, you know, you worry about actors in the beginning because they have to struggle and, you know, she really wanted so this investment banking job made her feel like, oh, thank God, Jimmy has a job. She has benefits, good salary. It was interesting because when the islands, they promote entrepreneurs. You come to America, my family was like, get a job. Yeah. And I'm like, what happened to that entrepreneurial spirit? In my head, I'm thinking, how, how, how ironic. But, you know, when, you're in, when you have an entrepreneurial spirit, it never leaves you. No matter where you go, you can you can hold as many jobs as possible. It will if that is your destiny to pursue your own. If that is part of your journey to pursue your entrepreneurial, you know, spirit and to follow that spirit, then that's what's going to happen. And that's what happened with me. I spent two years at the investment banking firm. I was completely miserable, yeah. but it it really it really became the foundation of my career, and it really helped to kind of form. Um, and sustain me over the years of going out and freelancing and starting my own business as a costume designer. I don't think if I didn't, if I didn't have the experience of understanding, you know, 401k, having a portfolio and understanding like how important it was to have insurance and life insurance and all these things that most creative people don't necessarily think about. I don't know if I would be where I am today. I don't know if I would have said, Oh, when I started my, you know, freelancing career, that I needed to find an accountant and I needed to find like, you know, have a business manager. Initially I wasn't making any money, but when I, when I wasn't, it wasn't an issue. When I started to make money. Then it became like, okay, now what, right. where are you going to put that money? Right. How, where do you see yourself 20 years from now? And those people that I surrounded myself with made sure that I was up to date and with all my taxes that I was building credit. 
um, that I was going to take that cash money that I had and invest it into real estate, put it someplace safe. I incorporated in 1994. Any, you know, assistants or interns, anything that came to work underneath it in the company, I became a creative service agency. Nice. So and when I started working in the record company, when I interned at the record company, I realized there was this void um, that they needed someone to kind of help them artists develop and create these costumes. And because when I, because of my experience in working in theater, I understood how important a costume designer's contribution was to the overall story. Absolutely. I don't think that music looked at costume designing in theater and film as something that could be applied to their world. Yeah. I helped them to understand that this is an important part of the marketing yeah. and, and sales. Like it was an important part of the messaging. Right. So I came in like this real force to be reckoned with as an intern. I kept my ears to the wall. I, I threw osmosis. I was a sponge. I listened to everything. I really, I sharpened my skills as it related to costume design. Once I realized this could be something that they need. And I just need this one opportunity, this one job, but I wanted to be ready for that one job when I was able to get it and how I was going to go about being successful. How can I take the idea of theater costume design and what I did when I, when I was in, when I was studying theater, if I didn't get the role, I took the costume designers role. So I understood how to do it there. Yeah. But now I had to figure out how I applied that same theory. And as I started to kind of dissect and look at the subjects and look at the void and the need and the white space, I was able to kind of carve out my, my space and how, who I was going to be as a costume designer in, in the urban music space. Because this was the world of hip-hop, black music. Right. And black music was not being played on MTV, VH1. It was strictly black entertainment television. Right. And my goal was, how do I change the narrative? How do I get crossover pop culture going in? I'm coming from investment banking. So I came in with a little bit of a uh, kind of corporate, uh, uh, I don't know, intelligent uh, kind of the way I looked at business in a, somewhat of a, in a high brow kind of way. Right. So when I, when artists describe how I was when they first met me, they were like, you were always so like fabulous. And I'm like, I grew up in the Bronx, one bedroom apartment, <laughs> you know, single parent home. I don't come from anything. I come from nothing. Yeah. But what I do come from is knowing my value, knowing my worth, knowing, always felt like a superstar from a very young age. That's I would never allow anyone to, kind of shrink me. My mother was also very amazing at not dulling me down and saying, speak when you're spoken to or hush, be quiet or don't wear this, don't wear that. She really allowed who I was as a, as a, as a human. You know, we can't, and now as a mother, I look at my kids and I don't want to overproduce them. I realize that my mom didn't alter the true essence of who I was. And she allowed me to just be. And if she didn't allow me to just be, I don't think I would have, I would have had the audacity, the, you know, the, 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 the confidence, you know, to be the person I was walking into that corporate world yeah. when it was, I was the only brown face in the building you know, or, wow. you know, the young, young woman in the right. space right. who's always the minority in that, in that space. Yeah. Black people were in these inner cities in their communities and that's where we were suppressed and that's where we were supposed to be but there was no ceiling on you know i didn't have that 
that mentality of there was no ceiling. There was no glass ceiling. Yeah. So breaking through was like, I was just like, <laughs> I was fearless. I was right. just, you know, I look uh, back like and I'm that. like, oh my God, I can't believe I did and said that. That's and um, it was because of that, I think I was able to say to black culture, we don't have to ask for permission mm. to change the narrative and tell these stories. It was hard, but it doesn't have to be the entire narrative. Okay. We can storytell through fashion. We can be aspirational and change the narrative through fashion, through style. Well, and when I, I delivered it that way, they really absorbed it, you know? I mean, it was the genius. The directors got it. The music executives got it. I love that you, that you borrowed the paradigm of theater, theater arts and you applied it to, to music in a brilliant way. And you were one of the first original voices doing that. Yeah. Phenomenal. Because when you think about hip-hop culture, hip-hop culture was very gritty it was like rock and roll like the parents were like oh turn that off this is you know they were like hip, <laughs> right. you know rock and roll was devil music you know right, and hip-hop right. became gangster music right and those people were like i don't even understand what i remember li literally hearing white people say i don't even understand what he's saying like, what's he saying <laughs> but these were poets you know yes. these were these were individuals that had stories to be told and this is how they express also themselves. some of them were making up it's how they expressed it and they were writing these narratives that may not necessarily have been theirs yeah. but um for some it was for some it wasn't yeah. Yeah. and then women in the music business the misogyny of, of women in the music business was a whole other dynamic yeah <laughs> it was, no, it so was one you know one uh obstacle Left. So there was many, many, many fights to fight. So there was never a dull moment. Yeah, no, for sure. And then over time, you've w worked with some amazing um, uh, musicians and, and artists. Um, I just I noted your your start was with a group called High Five. Was that one of the first groups you worked with? Oh my goodness. Well, the first uh, person I worked with is interesting because it's um, a director by the name of Billy Woodruff, who's gone on to do blockbuster sure. movies and stuff like yeah. that. And he directed this, it was like this artist that was an Epic Records, a Sony derivative, and he had a single deal. It was not a big deal. No one even knows who this kid is. His name was DJ Quayshawn. And it was okay. like, yeah. That was my first ever music video that I styled. Nice. But then I went on to do boy bands, and I was doing the Backstreet Boys and High Five, and I started doing like, you know, editorial stuff and just kind of spreading myself around as I was navigating my way through. But in, in the midst of all of that, so leaving my internship at the record company, figuring out that there was great freelance work and saying, okay, I get it now. And the guy that I was working for, he wasn't very nice. So I was like, okay, I think I better serve freelance. My mom was terrified because I quit my job. Now I'm interning. Right. Now I'm freelancing. Now it was just here. very yeah. scary. The, the optics of it was very scary. But I still had my insurance. <laughs> on my job i still had my you know portfolio with some stock nice. you know i still had certain things in place but to her i was like people were like oh what's june doing she's like oh she's unemployed and i'm like no i have a job you know like they were, <laughs> but they were freelance and they came and went right right and right. i remember figuring out because the budgets were very small saying okay i can't keep spending the money at retail kind of all in numbers so give you a thousand dollars and say we need three looks figure it out and it wasn't about going to the stores and books. I was like really having to get creative. Yeah. And this is when I discovered, I was like, well, where do the clothes come from before they get to the retailers? 
They, oh, there's a showroom. There's a corporate company. There's fashion houses. That's when I discovered the fashion houses. I remember the fashion houses telling me, no, I'm not interested. They didn't, at the time, they didn't understand that black culture would be one of the the number one leading cultures exactly. in the world. Right. Black music, hip hop music is one of the number one genres, number one genres of music. Who would have thought? Yeah. Well, to be Every a trendsetter. Every major fashion house told me no. Yeah, they, they did, some of they just didn't have the vision. Yeah. I would tell them, no, I'm telling you, this guy, Jay-Z, is going to be the next yeah. best thing. I would, I would keep knocking at the doors. Finally, I knocked it, like, you know, the door. You know, I discovered this brand called Cross Colors and Carl Kanai. This is when Criss Cross was around and oh, yeah. TLC was around and all right. hip-hop started to become very colorful and playful. And I ended up meeting the owners of the company. And they offered me a job. Oh, okay. They nice. offered me a job as the marketing director for the East Coast because I, because I came in and I said, "This is a great brand, but you know what? I'm seeing it everywhere. You're oversaturating the marketplace. You know, people, people want what they can't have. Yeah. I'm like, especially yeah. celebrities. They're like, whoa, where did you come from? <laughs> they were like, we could use someone like you on the East Coast to kind of determine like what our billboards look like and determine where we spend mm-hmm. our money and what magazine and put on our fashion shows and you know, help us navigate the marketing. And I'm like, what? I was like, like, no, I was like, you know, now I'm freestyling. I was like, totally freestyling. I was like, well, you know, I have a job. It's paying me, you know, $75,000 a year, blah, blah, blah. And the banking job was only paying me 65. And at the time in the the 90s, that was good money. You know, that's like equivalent to 400,000, 500,000 now. And, so I was totally calling his bluff. He says, well, think about it. Tell me what you come back tomorrow. We'd love to have someone like you come back tomorrow and I'll let me know what would be a good middle ground. So I came back tomorrow. I said, you make an offer. Okay. He made an offer. I said, he said, okay. He says, well, you making 65. We can match that. I said, um, I'd rather you match it at 75. And mind you, I had already left the firm, but he didn't right. know that. Yeah. I was just telling yeah. him I was freelancing and I was looking at different showrooms and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, I understood marketing and I understood the market. And, you know, as being, an, you know, on the, an, on the analytical floor, I would see certain, you know, I was privy to a lot of uh, information that could tell me what retail was looking like and so forth. And I mm-hmm. paid a lot of attention. So we settled at 75. I worked at the company. As I was working at the company, I was also realizing, oh, this company is the hottest company, the fastest growing urban brand before FUBU, before anything. And I was then getting press for being the youngest black marketing director in the fashion industry. So I was getting these articles written up about me and the daily news and here and there. And I also realized there's a calling card to meet artists by product placing clothes and then taking them as clients and really started to grow and then hiring assistants that could cover me and kind of, and I was like, wait a minute, this is a business. Yeah. I'm slowly building my business and understanding I don't need to stay at this company. I can build a whole business and have this company as a client. So yes. I spent a couple of years with Cross Calls Carp and I, three, four years, spent some time there. And then I opened my own office, got, you know, started, started hiring a, a team of, of, of people and all the record companies. At that point, I'm on fire. Market companies are calling me. <laughs> I'm great. still working with this brand on a freelance level. The brand had eventually went under. They had suffered. Okay. They were mismanaging money and they went under. But 
thank God they went under, but I had my own company. Yes. It was just a client, yeah, That's which right. was really, yeah. So smart so on I was your really part. Well kind done. of smart. Absolutely. So um, it all kind of worked out. And it was just from there, I was just, you know, it was June, it was June Ambrose in the month, but I started a company in 94 called the, the Mod Squad. And okay. that's how it all kind of got started. And I was, we had photographers, we had hair, makeup, and we were literally, a client would come to us and we would literally do soup to nuts, right. um, all of those things. But I remember, you know, the fight that I had to fight in the fashion industry, asking these high-end designers to please help us and be part of these music videos. And they just would, the racism was so rampant. They would, once they would see who I was pitching them, they said, oh, no, no, never. Wow, wow. But I never, I never, I said, fine. I said, if you're saying that it's okay, I don't need your permission to create this costume. So I started, I, I would design everything I had in my head. Yeah. I wanted something shiny and red with puffy and, and, and mace. I would, I would design it. If I wanted yeah. to put Missy in nice. a big blow up garbage bag suit, I would design it. If I wanted to take, you know, athletic leisure wear and do like leather, leather jogging suits and all this stuff, I didn't need these high end houses. I would, yeah. I would go outsource the fabric. I would go, I would, I would have, I would illustrate it. And then I would take it to a contractor nice. in the garment district and I would have it made. Right. And well as we started to build this, like these beautiful work of art and collaborating with really talented directors like Hype Williams, we didn't need them. They started, you know, finally, but you know, one or two saying yes helped. One or two right. saying yes helped. I remember Was going Versace to one of them? Giorgio Armani was the first okay. to give me a suit for Jay-Z. Before right. Giorgio Armani said yes, I was designing all of Jay-Z suits. Yeah, yeah. He wasn't used to wearing suits, but I loved the softness of the shoulder. Mm. And I took the idea of just like kind of, and I realized that Giorgio Armani, that was also his philosophy. Right. If you weren't used to wearing structured suiting, Giorgio Armani was the Italian soft shoulder. It was great for a young man who wasn't used to wearing suits. It yeah. was very comfortable. Yeah. That kind of leisure suited look to that particular personality of, of, of artists. And as we developed our, our stature, our everything, we evolved into a Tom Ford Stronger Shoulder suit. And this took years, but again, it's character development. It's years yeah. and years yeah. of evolving. All of the artists that I've worked with, you know, over the over my career, I've done over 200 music videos. Like, you know, I've done several tours. Um, I've done commercials, published as an author. I, I uh, right. Simon used to publish a book of mine, Effortless book came Style. Out in 2006, Effortless Style. Yeah. Effortless Style. Well done on that. Congrats. Um, you know, I, I, what's always fascinating to me, your inspiration comes from, you've talked about this, old films, books, and talking with directors, uh, as opposed to, uh, you know, sort of being educated with, uh, in it. Or it's just, I, I love that you've gone to these non-traditional sources of inspiration. And I think that's what gives you such a unique and fresh voice. I also love that you are really working with um, the personalities of your clients and you're sort of personifying that in their wardrobe. Uh, the way I kind of think of it is um, you're, you're, you're like an artist, your client is a canvas and uh, your color palette is basically how they're doing, how they're feeling. And that's how you create this brilliant work of art. Totally get me. I mean, it's, it's so refreshing. You know, when I, when I walk in to meet with a client, I don't walk in as this kind of servant. I walk in as 
uh, an, a collaborator. I'm walking in as an artist saying, I would love to collaborate with you. Or, you know, if you're in a place where you don't have the ideas and you don't have the answers, it's okay. Yeah. You can trust me. You become a stylologist. You become this, you know, it's more than what it's perceived to be. And I recognize how important my contribution was going to be later on, but I recognized from the inception how important it was for us to take control of our own personal narrative and our own personal equity. Nice. If I walked in not looking like a million bucks, right. then how could I demand a million bucks? How can I create something that looked like a million bucks. Yeah. So it really started from self-worth and self-value. When I speak to other young people of color, and I, and I say people of color because our journey is not the same as someone else's journey. Uh, a young white girl coming into, you know, or a young white boy coming, breaking into fashion. It, it, is, it was not necessarily an industry that was designed for people of color. And, um, you know, you can see from the, the, the famine of black designers. Um, but we, we, we carved out our own lane and we figured it out. And I, you know, I said to someone the other day, as we're having these conversations about racial and systemic indifferences that we're having as a, as a, as a, as a culture, as a, as a world, as a country, um, that I built my career on the backs of people of color. Yeah. And I feel so proud to say that because yeah. how many people can say that? Exactly. You know, not a lot of people can say that because no. there's so many that have built their careers on our backs. You know, yeah. our con you know, we have literally put the labor and the work in. But my people, you know, black people gave me my first opportunity mm. to, to, to make something of myself. Yeah. And yeah. It's it, that's really I, I may have taken it for granted, but I definitely don't take it for granted now. It's such a a wonderful thing to brag about. No, absolutely. And it shows well, that we have always had the ability to to do things, um, you know. But we need to support each other. We need absolutely. we need we need more financial stability. We need the system needs to be designed differently because it wasn't. You know, I remember when I first went to. Uh, the, the, the uh, design house for Jean-Paul Gaultier is a European brand. And they told the PR person, Europe told, the, told them, no, we couldn't have the stuff. And oh she's a white woman, a white woman, she said, very dear friend of mine. She says, no, 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 I believe in you. I see what you're doing. Take whatever you want. They don't, they don't have to know about this in Europe right now. And she put her job on the line to wow. allow me to pull these couture pieces and so that I can mix high fashion with urban music and showing them that, that this is all, you know, like this is inspired by us. We, yeah. you know, we can, we can articulate this as well. You know, we're Kings and Queens, you oh, know, so we, why are we not worthy of wearing these couture pieces like anyone right. else? Right. And being able to, to be able to take that and show them was very important to moving and pushing the culture forward. Yeah. I love that. And one of the I first, collaborative deals that Adidas did with, uh, with a black artist was with Missy Elliott. They right. weren't doing, I, cause I bought to Adidas. I said, I'm literally working with all of your tracksuits. I'm taking them apart. You should do a collaborative deal. Let's collaborate. Let's do something together. 
And that's where the Missy Elliott Respect Me Line, I was a creative director for that. And Missy nice. was the face of the brand and the muse. And now look at Amazing. Kanye's collaboration, Rihanna's collaboration, uh, right. Pharrell's collaboration, like all these collaborations that, you know, these, you know, urban, you know, these, these black artists, this hip hop culture, right. um, are ab they're able to do. It's such a blessing you had the perseverance to keep pushing on that front. You had the vision. Well done. <laughs> Uh, really a trailblazer in that way. It's it's phenomenal. Um, and I, I know when some of these things were go going on, you were juggling being uh, a mom as well. I heard about how when, when Chance was born, <laughs> and when, when Summer was born, you were uh, in the middle of uh, video shoots and Adidas had a deadline and uh, it was just such a quick turnaround for you. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I mean... I was on an advertising job for uh, L'Oreal at the time, and I had a pre-pro meeting uh, two days, three days before my due date. I was like four centimeters dilated. I was like at these wow. meetings, like just going on. <laughs> <laughs> wow. And my client looked at me on Friday and they said, let's do this. Let's put some things in place, contingency things in place, in case come Monday we're shooting that you don't show up. Because I was like, I don't know. And Sunday I went into labor, and we and those thank God we put things in place. And I went into labor, I delivered, and I remember literally working through it um, over the phone with my sending. They were sending me pictures back and forth. At the time we didn't have FaceTime, so we were sending pictures back and forth and having me approve the, <laughs> making sure the looks looks good with my assistants on set blah blah but yeah my doctor walk in and say you have to rest you just delivered a baby and i'm like yeah yeah we never i never missed a beat now i was back to work like a week later with my with chance on my hip nursing <laughs> traveling nanny i mean i was so fortunate enough to have a job and clients that totally you know, valued my, you know, what I was bringing to the table or give her whatever she needs to be comfortable, right, right. which That's was great. Great, great. Both kids, yeah. both, both kids. So it was great. That's fantastic. And I didn't have kids until I was financially, you know, stable and set. That was a really big, you know, that was helpful because I was able to, you know, hire someone to, you know, help me, you know, with all the domestic stuff and just, you know, everything. But my kids are with me all the time. That's until great. they got lives of their own but yeah. now even my teenage girl she's with me all the time yeah. you know well, i love you really have a show together that you're doing which is yeah. phenomenal yeah. it's helpful it really helps us to stay bonded and yeah. especially during this time it's like how do you keep a routine how do you you know stay tapped in because they spend so much time on the internet yeah. this is at least my way of engaging seeing who her audience is yeah. and bringing that world together Absolutely. our friends follow me their parents follow me and we you know we're all kind yeah. of in this together which is great i love that so well done yeah that's great um june i know that um you lost your mother um yes. today's my mom's birthday actually oh wow she would have been 83 years old today so, amazing yeah. wow. it was an emotional morning but like you know i've been talking to friends before i got on this i was like i don't know if i'm gonna even get through this without Wow. And I'm like, in a, and I, I think I'm going to sit on the balcony somehow <laughs> looking at water. My mom, you know, she's from the island. So there's a body yeah. of water across the balcony that I'm looking at on the East River. And it brings me, it just keeps me calm. And it just, 
for some reason reminds me of her. I don't know. It's just the strangest thing. The way it moves, the yeah. stillness of it at times is very peaceful. Yeah. yeah so. Well, that's really touching. Well, she certainly will be in our thoughts today. Um, again, sorry for, for your loss. If you're comfortable talking about it, I know that it was a sure. challenging time and you were, had, you were about to embark on a tour. Um, but mm-hmm. um, w- w- was she ill? Did she, was she grappling with an illness? Yeah, so my mom took ill. Well, she had Alzheimer's, but the okay. Alzheimer's wasn't aggressively progressing. But again, she lived with my sister. My sister was her primary care- caregiver. In Georgia. And she took care, of, yeah, in Georgia. So, um, you know, day to day, I didn't necessarily feel the responsibility of having to care for someone with Alzheimer's. Right. But she was on medication for it, and it wasn't. So she knew us. She knew us until the day, until she couldn't, until she lost her words at the very, very end. So it was very interesting, you know, with the, with the Alzheimer's and dementia, where they say, you know, they would tell us, oh, she may not remember you, and blah, blah, blah. Only time she lost a sense of who, she, who we were was when she had fever or when she, the infection was attacking her body. So she had taken ill... Um, she was like really, really, like literally uh, there was that year when she had gotten sick, we spent a year caring for her to try to get her back. Mm-hmm. We just couldn't get her back. So she was sick for a year between she got one, she got, uh, she had gotten pneumonia. Then it was a UTI. Then she got C. diff, all these infections from being in the oh, hospital. Once yeah. just one thing after another, then she was in a rehab. And then it was, so it was like, but she, 11 hospital in and outs, 11 hospitals. Oh, man. Try to bring her home, couldn't care for her. It was just, wow. it was just, wow. um, it was just, it was, it was just difficult. But within that year, we just wanted to get her to, to 80. We were fighting for 80. <laughs> so actually she was in and out for two years because she took, she got sick in her 80th year. Okay. Right. So we wanted to celebrate her 80. It was like she was 79 going into her 80th year. And we lost her. Okay, so no, no, no. 78. We were fighting to get to 80. Gotcha. She, she passed away at 81. So she was 81 when, so we had her for like, right. you know, but that last, that last year we celebrate her 80th birthday and she was at a rehab. And then we had her for another full year of back and forth and business and finally had to make a difficult decision of putting in her in a home, which literally required us to be every day, every day in and out, advocating, visiting for her at this home. You cannot have a parent in a nursing home without them knowing that she is loved and cared for by a family. The worst thing you can do, and and that experience of just, first of all, just the experience of mortality, yeah. The life cycle and seeing like, you know, people say we grow old, but we grow young because mm-hmm. you regress back into this infancy state. <laughs> so true. The skin is thin. You want you my mom needed hugs. Like I would literally my sister would call me, she's like, She's in, she's sick again. I would book a flight an hour before I need to get on the plane. It was just wow. I would drop everything. It was wow. and I was very busy in my career, but this was my single most priority because I knew the clock was ticking. Yeah. You know, I felt, I felt the clock ticking. I felt this anxiousness of, every, you know, there was nothing else more urgent than being with her. And 
my sister was like, you need to come. You need, she come and me. She would say to me, no, she's fine. She's back in the hospital, but it's okay. You don't have to come. And then she would call and say, you need to come. And it was maybe 12 of those where I would literally, oh, she was like, a, it was like false alarms, false alarms. But every time I would show up, she would fight and she would snap back and I would come and I would play. I would literally camp out in the hospital when my sister was like, my family was like, you should go home and take a, you know, take a shower. I was like, I would literally go in for an hour to take a shower. I would sleep at the hospital and my sister take shifts because mm-hmm. I knew how much my sister had been dealing with before. Right. And yeah. I felt like, let me just give her some support. You know, let sure. me try to make this as easy for her as possible. And I, it was just, God was saying, this is who you are. This is what she, this is how she raised you. Or she needs you like you needed her when you couldn't speak, when you couldn't, you know, walk. And I would literally, you know, hours, 15 hours, stay by her side, massaging her, rubbing her essential oils, playing oh music. Mm-hmm. Through her therapy, I would, you know, try to encourage her you know, do fun social media things with her with the face, you know, and try to get her to giggle and sure. just try to find her within, you know, there was, you know, the brain was short circuiting, you know, that's the only way yeah. I could really, you could see the brain short circuiting is a horrific disease, Yeah, of course. you know, and you can see sadness in her not being able to communicate. Yeah. Even when she, when she was first diagnosed with you know, with Alzheimer's, she used to always say, I'm so stupid because she couldn't remember. And she you could see her feeling. Yeah. She would always apologize. Yeah. Well, say it's true. okay. And we would try to not make yeah. her feel so bad. Sure. And I think just, it was just heartbreaking. But, you know, it's, you lose them twice. Yeah. You know, yeah. and That's true. so, and it was a trauma. No, no, no. Yeah. I look back at it over the last two years and dealing with my grief, I had to admit and come to the realization that I had suffered a trauma. Um, I had I had suffered a trauma, and being able to, it was like you go through this phase of like preparing yourself mm-hmm. for the phone call. It's like preparing for like having a baby in a sense. You know, you have to prepare for the day you have to go into the hospital, and it's time to give birth. You have to have your mind in the right place. Right. I was preparing myself. For her dying and I remember the day before she had she'd gotten sick and there was another sickness and now she's in a nursing home and she would, went back to the hospital and they sent her back there was nothing else she was on like palatable hospice kind of care yeah, there was nothing else they could do I mean we had gotten her uh, a fecal transplant we did everything to try to get this infection to see the part we did our part we advocated sure. for her Zero we asked her if she wanted we asked her, you know, a, a, a couple of you know times. We said to her, "Are you ready to go?" Wow! And she would say no because the doctors would say, "Well, you know, there's nothing we can do. It's up to you guys if you want us to try this." And we would say, "Do everything you can." Sure. And yeah, you know, we watch. We would go through having to walk into the room and and argue with the you know and and try to. I literally would spend time with the nurse's aides and say to them, treat her like you would treat your own mother. Own mom, yeah. So don't just come in and change her diaper. Like, yeah. you know, care for her. And I would make friends with them and help them to understand, like, this is the love of my life, but you yeah. have to understand. She, and I know that they train you to be very kind of emotionless because 
they don't obviously don't want them to get too close to them, but these are human beings. Exactly. And they're and 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 the communication and touch is so important. I said she's still in the care for patients, like you're caring for patients. And I used I told them the story. I would go to the hospital be with my mother and I would watch her come in and care for people who'd had no voice. Yeah. Who had no mobile ability and she would talk to them and she mm. would rub them down and lotion them down. I'm like treat her like an you know a, a human yeah. and the yeah. care she she deserves this she, right. i'm telling you she deserves this and they would hear me understand me and 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 work with me and i would help them to change right. her diapers and it made a difference and yeah. i remember the day before it was the last visit my cousin came she's a she works in neuroscience a cousin of mine and she uh, was my sister's mentor as a nurse and mm. she said to my she looked at my sister and i it was the last visit I saw her alive. And she said she's getting, so she was preparing us. She yeah. could look at her and see from, she, she knows that the body, when it was, the body was yeah. starting to kind of you know, transition over. Yeah. So she was transitioning and, you know, it's like the thrush in the mouth, all these different all things. Right. And, and I remember saying, crying and just like saying, oh, you know, you don't know what you're talking about. She says, no, and she, says, it's, she says she's she's fought as much as she can fight. Amazing. I said to her, oh, I have to go and do this job. I knew that last visit, my sister even saying, you know, go, she'll be here when we get back. And I remember FaceTime, I went to, I went to LA, I, you know, she did, had no words at this point. She was just mouthing things, okay. but you know, she, she can mouth, I love you. Right had no voice and my sister FaceTimed me and, and I said, Oh, how is she doing? My sister was there with her. And I was like, I love you. I love you. And she was like, I love you. And that was the last time. Wow. No, please don't apologize. Take your time, June. Thank you for sharing this with us. This is really can only imagine what you went through in this loss, but it's very touching. It's really touching um i mean it's like she got a boost every time you came to her because you kind of had this like false start in a way 12 times because yeah. you you gave oh her life God. every time you went there every time and she would say you know she would say i love you she was like hi she's like hi june you know she would she would know when i would walk into the room she would just playing up that's an amazing then, bond you have so i was in la when i got the phone call and i knew yeah. The phone. I always would turn my phone off. Yeah. You know, when I needed to get some sleep and I was I stopped doing it because she was in the hospital. And I was I was supposed to be working on the the uh, Jay-Z and Beyonce tour and I, I said to them, you know, I, I I me doing this tour is contingent on right. you know, they were like, How's your mom doing? And I said, Well, they knew that it was contingent on if she was because there was a European tour. I won't be able to go if she's, you know, in the hospital. I just want to be there because I knew the clock was ticking again. We knew she wasn't going to get better. Sure. But we knew that every moment was going to be important. So, um, I had, I was, I did a, uh, we, I was fitting, was with the Carters that night, and I, you know, said um, they asked me how she was. I said, you know, one day at a time. Yeah. You know, I said life is happening. But I said to them, I said, life is happening. It's just 
it's nothing I could do. I have no control over it. And they were just the best way to put it. And they were just like really in awe, just kind of the strength and how I was kind of looking at it because I showed up to be with them to do this. My mom said, I, you know, I, I felt like she said, you should go. And it was almost as if she wanted me not to be there. And I, that of the morning, it was like maybe 5 a.m. in, uh, in LA and my sister called me and she said they called and said she's doing CPR and she's and she was saying she's dying she's dying so the the trauma of that phone call and hearing that over and over again yeah. haunted me so so it happened I came home my husband put me on a flight he was calling he was obviously upset that he wasn't with me when I got the call I'm alone in his hotel room in LA I had to fly back to New York mm-hmm. I, it was almost like this numbing, it's like, you don't even, everything goes silent. My sister gets to the, finally gets to the nursing home. When she gets there, she's gone. We FaceTime, I get to see her. She's body's still warm. We go through all of that. My friend gets me onto a flight that's at the hotel with me. Thank God they get me onto a plane. The stewardess was just so, you know, they had, called ahead and told them that I had mm. this loss and they were so accommodating. They gave me a private pod so that I can be, it was jet blue, um, so that I didn't have to sit next to anyone and I can yeah. just kind of be by myself and grieve someone gave up their seat for me, which was just really beautiful. I told my husband not to tell the kids. Yeah. He picked me up, we got home, broke the news to the kids. I mean, my kids looked me in my face, they knew. Yeah, of course. The next morning, I packed, they stayed here, and I myself went to Atlanta for yeah. five days. And, you know, I, I didn't want them around. I said, I just, this is something that I needed to do. As the baby, <laughs> I needed to grow up. And yeah, in that moment, yeah, I had to nice. be, like, you know, I was always the baby. They never, they, I mean, they protected me from everything. And in that moment, <laughs> I took control of everything. Nice. You know, I put on my big girl pants. And that's it. I got there for my sister. I held her. I said, "I would let me let me do this." Yeah. And um, you know, I helped. I, I just started making. She had the nursing. She already had. She had the the um, the um, funeral home already yeah. done. Yeah. So I I ended up finding out that someone who I was doing business with knew the knew the family, that knew the funeral home. So I was calling in. Yeah, I was calling all my favors and friends. Sure, yeah. I called my friend. I called my friend um, Kelly Price, who is a, a gospel singer and who had worked with Puffy for many years. I hadn't seen Kelly in twenty years, but I um, I know that she mm. comes from a, a really, you know she comes from the church, so she knows everything about that. Mm. I don't even know what made me think to call Kelly. It wasn't even like we were in touch. Something came to me. Call Kelly. These voices. Wow, amazing. Called us I said, Kelly, I'm in Atlanta. My mother died. She said, I'm here, whatever you need. Wow. We met with her. I called. Uh, every At this point, everybody was finding out. The news was out. Everyone was. I called. Um, oh, uh, um, I called Steve Harvey's wife and I were friends. We weren't mm-hmm. close, close friends. But yeah. we were newly friends, acquaintances. She called me just out of the blue, and I said, I'm in Atlanta. I said, my mom passed away. I'm making arrangements. She says, I'm coming. Wow. And I said, what? And she hung up the phone. Wow. 
And I was like, what? That's beautiful. A day later, she says, I'm here. She fired up the jet. She told Steve, I need the plane. <laughs> she got on the jet plane. We had already met with the funeral home. We had the numbers and all the stuff together. I was going to put on the most first lady send off for my mother. My husband said to me, you do what you have to do. You give her the best funeral. So I don't care what it costs. So he was like, she deserves that. Just make it, make it perfect. And nice. I said, okay. <laughs> and I have police escorts. I had, you know, wow. so she came Sorry. and she, she literally, Margie Harvey became my eldest sister. Wow. My sister, Karen, like my sister was like, why is she here? And I was like, I don't know. <laughs> and she helped us. I, I, we weren't that close. We were, we were friends. We were acquaintances, but it wasn't like we were like. And she, she helped us with all the with the Kate all the final decisions. She just was there, sitting, just whatever we needed that we needed to finalize. She was the eldest sister. She was my sister Karen that passed away. My sister said, that's the only thing I could think of. And she asked her at lunch, we were sitting eating. She said, why, why are you doing this? She's like, I don't know. Something told me June needs me. And I came. That's, and it was just, uh, that's beautiful. I just have goosebumps. And, um, you know, so we, we laid her to rest. Um, I mean, there were so many decisions. I remember having to pick out her outfit and, I went into a store. Now, of course, everybody is, you know, of course, I, if anyone was going to pick out the outfit, it was going to be me. Right. And um, I walked into, uh, my mother would not have wanted us to spend a lot of money on an outfit. She would have thought that, you know, so I did exactly, I mean, I had to pick out the coffin because my sister was just emotionally depleted. Yeah. She was, she, yeah. you know, she had to deal with, you know, her body and, all, and it was, she was just, and she walked into a nursing home and she literally just collapsed. I'm not the nursing home, into the funeral home, funeral home and she yeah. collapsed. She wasn't able to pick out anything. Just, she was, she said to the guy, she's like, where, you know, where's her body? Where, we, you know, she's like, where is she? Like, you know, um, cause this was our first time doing this. We never did this. We didn't, we didn't know. Right. And so I picked out, I, so I made the final decision on, on that. I went and we were like, okay, now in terms of burial, my mom, Remembering, does she want to go underground? None mm. of no one in our family has been buried in a mausoleum, so we had to make those decisions. What that meant, yeah. yeah. Um, so, and I said, I remember saying, "Don't put me in the ground." And I didn't know if that was a dream or if that was real life. Mm. So I didn't know if my brain was sure. playing tricks on me. I wasn't sure. Um, and then I had to finally make the decision. So I went to the we went to the cemetery. And I, and I had to pick out the plot and, and I had to figure out, we decided to go with a mausoleum. Mm. And I, my sister was again, just, she said, you go, I can't just do it. And I went out into the cemetery and I walked around and I looked, waited until the sun hit me on my face and felt the sun and then my mom was sun. And I stood in front of this one plot and I, and I felt, and I stood there and I felt the sun on my face and I said, this is it. That was where she was laid to rest. And, by the time the family and everybody came, everything was done. Everything was, I had a steel band for the final procession. Mm -hmm. I had Kelly, we had gospel singers, a perfect send off. We had a police escort. My cousin went out that evening and he said, someone said, 
you know, man, someone got buried today. And it was like, it must have been a very important person because the police escort and the line procession to the cemetery was like, like a VIP. So great. And he just, he just started crying because he was like, that's my aunt, you know? <laughs> so it made him feel so... I mean, it was just, everything was perfect. But you know, the, and then the next day I, I left, I got on a plane and I, um, and leaving was really hard because I felt like I was abandoning her and I had to, I made the decision to do the tour and get back to work immediately. I could not be still, I could not let the grief consume me. Yeah. Well, at least I didn't want to in front of my family. So I had to go to Paris and um, we put the tour in Paris for 60 days and I was away grieving alone from my family, but it was a decision that I had to make and I, I almost wanted to be alone. I needed to be, I needed that time. You needed some grieving space. Yeah. Process. Yeah. And I had my closest assistants around me, but I would literally was having grief attacks every five minutes. Wow. But, um, you know, Jay-Z and Beyonce were just, um, you know, my husband had spoken to him and he said, you know, if, if it wasn't you guys, I wouldn't have probably encouraged her to go and do this, but I knew that you guys would know how to care for her. Yeah. yeah. And I would literally start crying for no reason. They would just hold me and, well, Jessica's Jay is like, and he would just be like, let it go. And he was like, it would be okay. So I had Mother's Day on the road without her, first Mother's Day, oh, wow. my first birthday without her, all of those things on the road. But I was also seeing all these different countries that she had never traveled to. And right. I was leaving something in every country, you know, mm. a lock with her <laughs> initials on it. That's every country beautiful. I went to, she wow. was with me. Yeah. So the and tribute I was like, continued. I would, yeah. So it was like, I felt like if, she wouldn't have passed on if she didn't want to give, if this is not what she wanted me to do. And she knew that I loved what I did so much that she didn't want to keep me back from that. Yeah. Because she was physically just depleted. Yeah. You yeah. Know? So it was her time. It That's was her right. time to go. Yeah. It's very hard for her to hang in there any longer. She, um, she, she tried. Yeah. 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 Wow. Well, uh, thank you so much sharing that and uh what a spectacular tribute you made for this amazing woman who has impacted your life in such meaningful and profound ways and i think all of our listeners are going to be inspired by how she influenced your life and influenced others really just exemplary all the things she did and the love that she had for you and your sister sisters uh it's extraordinary so i think you've done an amazing job in how you've uh, said goodbye and uh I know it, it, grief is a continual process. It's never done. It's, uh, you know, reminders like today come up. And of course, we, we remember and honor. And uh, I'm just, I'm so thankful you had a mother like her. I think it's no, I'm, much of what so am I. made you what you I did. There's a, there's a quote that um, a dear friend of mine shared with me, a roomy quote. And it said, uh, the cracks are where the light enters. I and I that. hold that with me because it's like, you know, that hole in my heart, it's like where the light enters, you know, it's just, it's okay. You know, that, like you said, it, grief is a, it's a journey. And it, it, I think my life will forever be changed. She was 
the first love of my life that we all have to experience as children. You know, we have to lay our, you know, our parents to rest. It's, yes. it's the unnatural thing is when a parent has to lay their child to rest. Yes. That's when it becomes, you know, that's, that, that's a whole other grief to yeah. bear. You know, that's the unnatural way, evolution of life way is that we have to go through this life cycle and have this experience. So, you know, one day at a time. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Um, June, you've been so generous with your time. There was just one area I wanted to ask you about and just really highlight because I think it's an amazing example of you giving back. Your involvement with the Thurgood Marshall Scholarship Fund. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, and I'm on the board of the Fresh Air Fund as well. I'm one of the first board members that were an alumni of the camp. And the Fresh Air Fund has been around for over 150-something years. Um, My mom enrolled me in the Fresh Air Fund, wanting to get me outside of the Bronx, that experience of taking the inner city kid and sending them away for two weeks to live with another family or go to a camp and take them out of the urban environment and have them experience fresh air. It's probably one of the best gifts you can give a child growing up in the inner city with, you know, with conditions that are really should be the way no child should live, grow up experiencing. Um, Yeah. And, 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 you know, that philanthropy is very important to me. And, you know, you know, when you, when you're fortunate enough to take the elevator up to the top, Make sure that you send it back down is always my philosophy. Nice. And wherever, you know, I can have be able to another offer an opportunity for another kid, one kid at a time or a hundred kids at a time or a thousand kids at a time. Even in social media, I feel a sense of responsibility to speak my truth, to to be transparent, to be to be of service, mm. to be a servant. Um, I think it's it's just part of life's journey. And I think that is, I am my mom's legacy. And this is what everything that I do would be what she would, would do, what she would want of me. Um, so, yeah. That's great. So beautifully said. That's wonderful. And I, I love the how that comes full circle. Uh, your mom took you, yeah. encouraged you to be a part of Fresh Air, and now you're uh, on the board. It's just, I love that. Yeah, it's very cool. Yeah. It is truly an honor. June, uh, I really can't thank you enough. Um, there are so many, I mean, this this interview could go on for hours, but I want to be mindful of your time <laughs> and uh, thoughtful about that. But I really appreciate all that you've shared. Such a great inspiration you are to, to so many people. I'm certainly moved by all that you've accomplished and what you've shared with us today. And I know my audience will be as well. So thank you. No, it was, thank it was, you. It was kind of therapeutic to kind of, release as well so thank you oh perfect i'm glad i can serve that to talk to yeah no i think i you know i don't i don't never feel guilty for crying it's because when i'm not crying it feels like i'm holding my breath so for me that's important it's a very natural experience to feel and to release that emotion is i most people don't exhale an emotion i think it's important that it runs it flows through you um in order to really experience it so, yeah so. absolutely well it's a high compliment for me you just gave so i'm, I'm glad i could be there in that capacity yeah, you're <laughs> amazing i'm a huge i'm a huge fan so thank you that's really well, lovely to hear Shun. thank you so much achieve is recorded at subtractive and hangar eight at the santa monica airport music is produced by hennity